My father had a saying that many of you know, I'm sure, and that is that if you are a hammer, everything looks like a nail to you. And he encouraged us to be Swiss Army knives or Leatherman tools and have multiple ways to do things and multiple ways to see things. And I promise you, I try to do that. It is the lectionary that's led me to a topic on generosity again. It is not me. Maybe my eyes see things in certain ways, but uh, it is a fact that the Bible deals with this topic a lot. And Jesus' parables invariably touch us where we live, maybe sometimes where we hurt, or some ex experience, some need. Jesus' parables are really real life. They're not just stories that are out there that uh, Disney might write. These are, these are real life stories. And so today we come to the parable of the rich fool. And, and it's... In a, those of us, and, and I think it is all of us here, whether we realize it or not, live in a land of abundance. So this has real application to us. I know a lot of people who struggle with how much is enough. Gail and I struggle with that at times. How much is enough? Or how do I use what I have in a way that's productive and right and creating good things in the world rather than just feeding my own desires? None of us want to ever be like or, or, or live like we are greedy or, or covetous. That's not something that we aspire to. I, I know no one who says, gee, what I really want to be when I grow up is greedy. That's not exactly the kind of thing that, that we talk about. And so yet, while intellectually we may know it, Jesus somehow feels a need to warn us that life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. So Jesus, as I said, is teaching the multitudes here, not just his disciples, but the multitudes, when suddenly he's interrupted. It's like this guy is off topic. Read what Jesus has been saying, and this guy just interrupts and says, uh, hey, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He's obviously an upset individual. Uh, um, this is a common dispute at this time. Uh, the eldest brother always assume control on death of the father or of the estate, whatever it might be. And it is his responsibility to settle the estate. And there are formulas for that. If you're interested, I'll be happy to give them to you. But for the sake of time today, uh, that's the part of the sermon I'll leave out. Uh, uh, for those of you who I promised I'd leave a part out, I'll leave that out today. But it was the eldest job to, to really settle that with all the other siblings. You remember the story of Esau and Jacob, do you not? Esau is the elder brother, and so Jacob has to trick his father, to get the inheritance. And so if an elder brother is unscrupulous or uncaring, refuses to settle the estate, so I don't get my money, I don't get what I'm supposed to have, he just keeps moving it along, where they looked in that day for help was with a religious leader. The Pharisees, the scribes, the rabbis, they were schooled in the law, not just religious law, though it was very much of a religious law-driven kind of society, but, but they, were, they were schooled in the law. This is the kind of things they were supposed to know. And, and, and this man, in one level, is really seeing Jesus now as a teacher, a rabbi, a, a learned individual. And so he says to Jesus, hey, hey, why don't you practice a little law while you're at it here? This is a real-life context for Jesus. And so he responds in telling this, this parable of the rich fool. It's interesting that Jesus' response to the man who says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, his response is rather curt to the individual. You get the feeling, do you not, that Jesus is thinking, I am not getting involved in a family dispute. That is wise. For all of you out there, it is wise not to get involved in a family dispute, unless it's your family. But more than that, 
There's something in the man's words or in his tone that seemed to clue Jesus that there is something more going on here, something more important than a division of possessions. Maybe the man is dealing with the wrong person's issues here. In his complaint, he's talking about his brother. Maybe he should be dealing with his own issues instead of those things he has against his brother. Jesus consistently insists that people should take responsibility for their own action and lives. We are never encouraged to go to God and focus our attention on the shortcomings or the offenses of others. We are, take, we are to take our own baggage to God when we go. We're to deal with the log in our own eye versus the speck in someone else's eye. We go to God at our best as grateful people and as confessors. God, thank you. God, I confess I have shortcomings. We do not go at our best when we go as complainers and accusers. God, if you could just make those people. My father in my ordination service, uh, my father was a pastor, he spoke at my ordination service and he said, you know, I know there are people out there, Gary, who will tell you that when a church really gets under your skin, you and, and, and my father had taken up golf later in life, he said, you go out there and you put that golf ball on that tee and you see somebody's face, you see John Bowley's face, and you hit it as hard as you can. He said, you know, Gary, I found it much better that when I go out to golf and I'm really frustrated, I put my frustrations on that golf ball. I see my hurts, my pains on that golf ball. That's the way we're to go to God. And this man comes to Jesus with, it's about my brother. Jesus' response really does lead us to believe that there's a deepest, deeper issue at play in his review, refusal to play the role of a state attorney. Somehow Jesus seemed to perceive the real issue is not justice here, but it is greed. And so Jesus' response to this man is rather intense. If you look at the, 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 the wording and, and, and how it's phrased, he first gives us a warning and gives this man a warning. Watch out. That's with an exclamation point at the end of it. Watch out. There's a warning. And then he secondly says there's some danger here. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. It'll reach up and grab you when you least expect it. When you don't think you're going to be greedy, all of a sudden it reaches up and grabs you. So, so there's a danger here to watch out for. And then he said, and that comes about because we have an error in thought. We really begin to believe that life's consistent in abundance of possessions. And so when you have that error of thought, you really are vulnerable to greed. So what's the issue that Jesus seems so deeply concerned about here? What's behind all of this? You might look at this and say it's actually idolatry. Jesus talks more about this first commandment of the Ten Commandments than any of the others. You know that commandment. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus was very aware of our human tendency to elevate something that is not God into a godlike status. Perhaps this is what Jesus sensed in, in the man who insisted that Jesus tell his brother what to do. And, and, and why Jesus deals with him so differently than maybe the man expected Jesus was going to. Idolatry is not an incidental matter. It can lead to absolutely devastating consequences in our lives. You know the old story, the old joke. The person is walking along and he sees someone uh, looking for something and just looking and looking and looking and, looking and it's nighttime, decide, decide you'll help. help. So, so says, what, 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 what are you, are you doing? doing? I'm, I'm looking, looking for my key. key. I, 
I, I, I dropped, dropped it. I lost it. Oh. Well, well where, where here did you drop it? it? Oh, no, I dropped it over there, but the light's better here. Right? You know that old story. To look for something where it does not exist is the ultimate formula for disappointment and failure. That's idolatry. That, in truth, is the act of idolatry. When we look for something that is ultimate in a place that has no ultimacy to it. When we seek an encounter with the ultimate where it does not exist, we will fail. Jesus seems, seems to sense that this is what this man is doing. The man is thinking, if I can just get all my material inheritance, I will have everything that I need for total fulfillment. This will solve all my problems. Jesus sounds caution. For one's life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Jesus' attitude toward the material aspects of life seemed to be one of balance if you read all of Jesus. It seems to be one of balance, the idea of what do you do with material things. For some in, in life, the material is all that matters. It's all about what I have. And somehow, if I get a bigger boat, I'm somehow better. Or if I get uh, something better, something shinier, I'm, I'm better. So there are people who live that way. And then there are others who declare that wealth and possessions are evil. If you have anything other than whatever you need to subside today, you are absolutely destroying the world. You're a horrible person. Both of those sides exist in our world, and we wouldn't have to go far probably in our own community to find that. Right? In St. Louis, you can find those kind of attitudes. Jesus' view, views were much more balanced. He said, listen, I enjoy what, what things can bring. We know, we know that, that Jesus, Jesus liked to eat and drink and be merry because he got accused of that, just being a rowdy guy. So we know he enjoyed life. He didn't seem to have a problem with those kind of things. He never declared simply having or possessing something was evil. He also noted that it can teach us responsibility. If you are faithful in little, I will help you be faithful in much. Right? And so we learn this, this moral development, this responsibility in our life, in terms of how we possess things. And so Jesus thought there were lessons to be learned there. There were appropriate ways to do these things. Jesus' Jesus's approach was truly balanced. He never says wealth is everything and it's a sign of God's favor, though some in his own day were saying that, or that it's somehow a blessing from God and God loves you more than others. Uh, I won't call the names because you'll still know them even though they're ancient. Uh, ancient, that is, back in the 50s, like when I was born. Uh, uh, but, but two pastors who got into a fight, and one, two Baptist pastors got into a fight, and one saying, well, obviously God has blessed me more and loves me more than you to another pastor because God has given me a bigger church. Now, that wasn't a joke. And how so insidious that kind of thing becomes. And Jesus says, that's not how it works, guys. Nor, is, if you have something, is it intrinsically evil. What Jesus did clearly say is that material things can do certain things for us, and they can't do other things for us. If we place any material object, thing, or person on the altar of ultimate importance, hoping to get from it all we need to meet the, the longings of our souls, we will surely be disappointed. Jesus is reminding this brother what one has does not define what a person is. 
So after the strong warning that Jesus gives the, the, the man here, he illustrates his point by telling this parable of the rich fool. You, you've heard the parable. I've already read it to you. You know, I had a really good year in my crops. I've obviously had several good years. My barns are too small. I'm going to tear them down. I have done well. I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to take my ease. Life is right with me. And so Jesus tells that parable. Now, it's interesting. We like to attribute good and bad to people in the Bible. This man is not described as good. He's not described as bad. He's described as a fool. He thinks if he makes greater provisions for his wealth, he will have everything he needs. There's no need to worry. He will be prepared for all eventualities. I'm going to take my ease. I often say, and, and no foolishness, but I often say, if I could just freeze this moment in time with the things the way they are, I would be happy forever. Well, I wouldn't, we know, and you can't do that. But we get that idea. That's where this man is. My life is good. It's perfect. I'm going to freeze this moment. We would label this man as success with all the things he's done and, and gained. But Jesus declares this way of living foolishness. Claypool, in looking at this parable, said it's foolish for three, he's foolish for three reasons. First, no amount of wealth can give security against all the uncertainties of life. And secondly, money and things cannot make someone love you or cherish you. The Beatles taught us that, did they not? You can't buy me love. They were wise philosophers. Some of you just didn't realize that. The third reason is you cannot empower yourself to live forever, no matter how much you have. If we build our hopes on anything other than God, on any resource, we are going to fall short. Anything other than the love and grace of God makes us end up disappointed. The rich fool was not evil. There's no hint he was dishonest. He got his stuff by hard work. He was simply foolish to think that wealth could do for him what in fact it does not have the power to do. The second foolishness of our rich farmer here is that he missed the genuine delight that comes from an experience of profound gratitude. From, light, from realizing how much he had received, that was utterly beyond his doing. A seed drops in the ground. It dies, grows, and produces 30, 60, 90, 100-fold. How it happens, we don't know, Jesus taught us in another story. And he has no gratitude for that. He misses out on the joy of gratitude. Note the number of times he says here, I, my. He felt his, his efforts were the total source of his riches. One of the great joys of life is to realize that the God of the universe is giving us all we have. God himself giving to you all you have. What a cause for celebration. Behind all of that lies, lies a graciousness that cannot be measured, but is to be celebrated with humility and gratitude. The rich farmer, the fool, did not seem to have that. And maybe a third clue to why Jesus might portray the, the, the center character of our parable foolish is in his total absence of generosity. You knew I would get there. Total absence of generosity. I am convinced that generosity is the base of all virtues. As we learn generosity, it starts with us understanding God being generous with us. The Bible story suggests that God created the universe to share God's aliveness with us. To let others simply experience